Hello and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Dan Seligson, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ashley Jacobs. What's up, Ashley? Hi, Dan. Today, we're talking about a vitally important issue to so many of us. Is there anything more important than knowing where to get the perfect corned beef or pastrami, piled high on marbled rye, piping hot potato knishes, whitefish salad, or decent pickles? For many Jews, the deli is nothing short of a lifeline to our childhood and our ancestors. While traditional deli foods are only a small part of the diversity of Jewish cuisine, they might be the one that most people associate with it. So important are delis that they get their own month, August, to be appropriately celebrated. To mark the occasion, we turn to an expert from our very own Jewish Boston community, Stephen Peljovich, owner of Michael's Deli in Brookline, a.k.a. the Corned Beef King. In addition to inventing hundreds of varieties of knishes, Stephen also believes in holding on to the classics, a menu that's familiar and inviting, connecting generations of Jewish families and many others who have found comfort in deli food for more than 100 years. Thank you so much. I know things are super crazy, so we really appreciate you. My pleasure. I'm, uh, I, look, it's it's nice to be able to talk to people in these times, and it's even better when you guys help broadcast the things that folks like me are trying to do and trying to survive. So we appreciate. Of it. course. How are things going for you as a restaurant owner and your staff right now? The reality is, is we're open, we're surviving, and it's hard. Like I could say, oh, poor me. Here's all the things that are bad, just like everyone else in my industry and countless others. So if you ask me that, I can give you a litany of things that make things more difficult. But at the end of the day, if you want to survive, you just have to try to find new ways to do business, new ways to do things, and suck up the obstacles as much as you can. Sometimes, sometimes they're a little too large to overcome. I can hear that. The good news is that there's always going to be a need for food. And I think delis are kind of a comfort food for people. And they're steeped in nostalgia. What might be interesting for people to learn is that delicatessens are an American thing. Despite being associated with Ashkenazi Jews, delis didn't exist in Eastern Europe. So how did the American deli come about and what makes delis Jewish? I think if you ask people in Boston, they might say delis are an Italian thing. Really? That's a story for a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, I get people coming in all the time like, you have chicken cutlets? I'm like, uh, nope. <laughs> What kind of deli are you? I'm like, I'm an old school Jewish one. What's that? I was like, try my corned beef. <laughs> no. Just like with, with almost anything that you look up on the internet or you ask somebody about, there's a hundred different opinions about what really happened and how it really happened. And no one who was there is around to tell us right now. So my understanding of it all is that in terms of like the sort of traditional Jewish food making its way into America, it started with uh, you know, knish vendors on the street corners in New York who would be, you know, the, the, their, their, their bubbies and their wives and whoever else would be in their house making these knishes and they would take their pushki and, you know, drive, you know, go out onto the side of the road. And as the laborers or the textile workers or whoever it was going down the streets, they would stop by and they'd grab, you know, a knish because a perfect sort of handheld warm meal and head off to work. And, you know, from that, you know, then freestanding, full service sort of delis that again, when you think about this family that's making this food in their house, that their their, their husband, their father, their grandfather, whoever it was is selling it out on the street, you know, that now they get a building and now they get a kitchen and now they have tables and they take all these recipes that they had in their family and all these foods that they grew up with, and they found a way, okay, let's make, let's make kishki plates, let's make corned beef, let's make, you know, kasha, let's make chopped liver, let's make, you know, all the fishes, let's do all this food that we all love, that in the grand scheme of things, most of those foods were cheap foods, cheap ingredients that were like infused with, that's, that's why you use schmaltz, that's why, you know, you, 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 you know, use brisket, you cook it for hours and hours and hours and hours to get as much flavor into that meat, that really tough meat as you can. And 
that became now like a whole new way of doing food and the delicatessen was sort of born and it grew to thousands of delis all around New York city. And, you know, thankfully for me growing up in Miami beach, uh, as a kid, a lot of those, a lot, a lot of, you know, uh, they weren't the New York delis, but they were delis that were associated with New York. And they, you know, in, in terms of the history of delis, like people would put the rascal house or Wolfies or Pumpernicks in that, echelon of like great delis that don't exist anymore unfortunately no real delis exist anywhere in miami anymore but i was able to grow up with those and you know now i'm fortunate enough that for the last eight years i'm now i don't know in that world uh and running a deli and 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 being able to ex give people the experience that i grew up with and continue this sort of tradition that is long before my time and hopefully you know as restaurants evolve and as food evolves and as people's flavors evolve, the deli will still be around in some way, shape or form because it's survived. And if you know, if you think about it, it's not like Italian food. It's not Chinese food. It's not American food. It's not barbecue. It's like, it's a really weird niche. When you look at like a old school deli menu, if you're flipping through it, you'd be like, what am I going to eat? This is, this is what we're ordering. You know, like it just, it's not, it's, you know, it's brown food, it's messy food. It's not, it's not a pretty plate of stuff. It's just really good, hearty food made with love. So you mentioned the origin of deli. What are the particular menu items that I'm sure you have, but that a Jewish deli would have in common that would distinguish it from an Italian sandwich shop, a different kind of restaurant? I think primarily, if you talk about like the, the the trinity of meats, if we want to go there, would be corned beef, pastrami, and brisket. If you don't have those three as some of your meat choices, then I don't think you fit into old school Jewish deli. And then it's all the K's, the knishes, the kogols, the, the kreplach, which I don't do, but like those sorts of things that people associate with Jewish food, comfort, Jewish comfort food, chicken noodle soup, matzo ball soup, chopped liver is a big one potato latkes, just the litany of food that gets associated with what you would expect the smells and sights to be when you walk into a deli. And, and speaking of those smells and sights, there are menu items and then there are the intangibles of a Jewish deli. Can you get into what some of the things are, like the visual indications that you have entered a traditional Jewish deli? I think for me, the, you know, what it comes down to me is it's the smells that bring back the memories, at least in this day and age. Like you walk into a place and you go, this smells like the place that my grandparents took me to when I was a kid and introduced me to all this food. Whether it be the pickles on the table or the smell of, you know, the meats that are cooking in the back or the knishes or latkes getting fried. Like all, that, all those sort of smells bring you to, oh, I'm in the right place. This place is cooking the food, making the food. It reminds me of those days. And there's that sensory feel. And then it's also that, that you walk in. And I think in most cases, when people think of Delhi, they think of like that family experience. You walk in and whoever it is that's greeting you, they don't know who you are, but they treat you like you came over for Rosh Hashanah dinner. And here's your seat. Grab a seat. Here's, you know, if you're at someone's house, here's your glass of wine. Here's your plate of food. And we're going to keep feeding you until your stomach bursts. And that sort of, personality that comes through you walk into a deli and that's what you expect you expect someone to be able to you never been here before here are the things that you should try you don't have to try all of them but here's the list that my grandmother would tell me i need to tell you or she's going to be pissed at me there has to be some altitude to a sandwich right like it, it needs to have a a certain height i think that's part of the reputation that the food is like big and in your face and i think again that goes back to the jewish grandmother feeding you till your stomach bursts sort of thing. We try to modify that a little bit and give people a reasonably large meal as opposed to an impossibly large <laughs> meal. But yeah, that visual of I need, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to put this into my mouth. How do I function with this? That's another piece of, if you're putting two or three slices of meat in a sandwich and you're calling it a deli sandwich, you're, you're in the wrong place. And we try to avoid that. <laughs> Yeah, and delis have evolved. I mean, like any other restaurant, like any other cuisine, delis have had to evolve over the years. For example, many delis are now not kosher, and they were kosher 100 years ago. Why do you think 
this kind of evolution has happened? Was it out of necessity or something else? Um, I think just like anything else, you look at just, if you want to look at just Judaism as a whole, as generations go on, the definition of what is a religious Jew versus a non-religious Jew versus a Jew in practice versus a Jew in culture versus whatever it is, that same sort of evolution of delis happened. Like a deli had to be strictly this, strictly kosher, strictly making things these way. This was the menu. And anything about old school delis, there's no substitutions, there's no changes. That you, you don't even get to order. There's a corned beef sandwich and whatever it comes, that's what you're getting. There's, and again, old schoolers will tell you, I get people who come in all the time, they're like, I want a knish. Okay, I have nine flavors. And they're like, no, I want a knish. And I'm like, okay, which one? They're like, a knish. I'm like, you want a potato knish? Like, yeah, that's what I want. I'm like, oh, you could have just said that instead of trying to put me in a corner like I'm doing something wrong by putting marshmallows in a knish, for example. How dare you? Yeah, How dare exactly. You, right? It's blasphemy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so I think that there is that sort of, I think part of it is that just sort of natural generation to generation, things are going to adapt and things are going to change. But it's also like we're in the restaurant industry. We're in the food service industry. And so if we don't adapt to what people are looking for, we're going to fade away. And even, I wouldn't say many some, a certain amount of those old school, long-term generational delis have adapted their menu over time to accommodate for the fact that people's grandparents are no, that's no, that's not necessarily a Jewish tradition anymore from a standpoint of whether it be assimilation or intermarriage, we can get to a whole different conversation about that, but things have changed. Like my grandparents, it was, there were, I grew up in Miami Beach and there were, you know, probably a dozen places that we would go to specific ones for specific foods and there were reasons for it. It was like you went to Saturday, you went to Shabbat services and then you went to have lunch at the deli or whatever. There was a reason for it and a destination to go to. And that doesn't necessarily exist anymore, unfortunately, but it's the nature of the beast. I love those Florida delis. I I loved going to those Florida delis with my grandmother in Hollywood. It was just like this is the pickle deli, this is the bagel deli, this is the right. This is deli. where you go for I the totally specific remember items. That. I totally remember and, that. And the scary thing is now, you know, I I spent half my life down there, whatever, less than half my life at this point. I'm getting older. Um, but the places that are now called delis down there, like for what we grew up with, it's like, oh, you're killing, you're killing me, man. These people are these people are basically taking supermarket product cutting the bag open putting it on some bread and calling it deli um unfortunately there's really especially down there where you think there should be at least some legitimate places left i have i i try to find them when i'm down there because obviously i want to i want to see what's going on when i'm visiting places in whatever city i go into and it to me it's just it's unbelievable how there is anywhere in south florida it's really hard to find an old school traditional place and, and again I'm not saying that I'm even one of those places, but at least I try to with certain things on my menu, they're going to taste exactly the same as two, three, four generations ago, because that's the way that we continue to make it. Whether it be family passed down recipes or traditional deli passed down, whatever it happens to be like, and I sound so, I hate saying it like this, but there's a right way to do it. And then there's, whether it be the trendy way to do it or the easy way to do it, because it's not an easy business, not, no food service is, but like the amount of prep work and the amount of work you need to do to get to the end product for a lot of these items, shortcuts are easy to find if you want to find them. Along with this, as you indicated earlier, the Jewish deli, uh, there were about 50, there were over 1500 in New York, and now there are about a dozen or so classic ones. And again, like at the same time, there's been a wave of upscale brunch oriented type delis where people wait for hours for brunch for with a deli menu that has smaller, more expensive portions. It's obviously not the same, but there's this resurgence with younger and younger restaurateurs trying to open up delis why, or deli adjacent places. Why do you think that is? I think that gets back to the beginning here. It, it is, regardless of your background, it is comfort food at the very basic level. The smells, the feel, the, the, the personality of it all makes you feel like you're at home. There's a certain level of, I'm happy sitting in here trying this food. And I think that's a big piece of it. I think there are people that, a, a lot of the people that have come in that are doing the sort of new version of deli, which 
I, I think the world of what they're doing to it, and it's good for me. The, the more people out there trying emulating this food and doing something with it, it brings attention to the work that I do and hopefully helps reverse that trend that we've seen over the last 15, 20, 30 years. So I, I'm all for it. I think it's interesting when someone puts like whatever, seven different mushrooms in a kasha varnishka, but I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just a different way of doing it. But if that gets someone to try kasha, because like when I was a kid, I never touched this stuff. I was like, it looks like freaking dog poop on pasta. Like what the <laughs> frig is this stuff? Like little pellets of stuff. Noodles have red sauce. That's how you eat noodles. Or it's mac and cheese. You don't put pieces of rock on it. And one of the first items that I added to the menu when I took over the deli was I started making kasha knishes. I didn't make kasha varnishkas specifically because there wasn't like a calling for it. I do it for the holidays because there's a big calling for it then. But even then, it's I have 10 people who order five pounds each of it for their families. It's not like a big, huge item. But to me, like, Getting, being able to reinvent those items or reintroduce those items is just a whole other way to introduce the food to people. So that works for me. I don't, I don't I, put deli in your name and get some semblance of what that food is and get someone who's never heard of a deli, never had that grandparent take them to one, and they go, wow, this is really interesting food because at the end of the day, it is really comforting. It, it's warming. It, it, there's something that feels good about sitting in a deli and eating that food that someone took the time to make that's similar to any restaurant that's doing food from scratch, but it's also, it's, can't think of the right word, but an ode, some sort of commemorative like tribute to this food that existed for so many years. So for the listeners who don't know what Kasha, I, I can't even, I don't even know. <laughs> this is so embarrassing because my dad grew up eating all this food and uh, so I'm Eastern European on my dad's side, but I'm Middle Eastern on my mom's instead of going to delis after Shabbat services on Saturday or, you know, on Sunday for brunch, we would go to the Greek store, the Middle Eastern store and or like have full, which is more, which is an Egyptian dish. Can you explain what that is? <laughs> Gosh, and varnish. Yeah, for what it's worth, my grandparents were from parts of Poland and Russia that don't exist anymore. My parents were born and raised in Cuba. I was raised in Miami Beach. So our holiday dinners. It was arroz con frijoles alongside the brisket. Like there were certain fried plantains were part of the meal, even though that has nothing to do with it. But kasha varnish is, is really, when people ask me what kasha is, I tell them it's like the original quinoa, except it's not healthy. <laughs> so it's just a, it's a buckwheat that gets, the way we do it is we boil the, we boil the grains and then we fry onions in chicken fat and add the grains to that and then add egg to that and then add I put garlic in it just because that's what my family did, even though, again, it's not really it would just be salt, pepper, chicken fat, the grains, and the bow tie pasta would be the traditional pasta for it. But like I said, when you look at it, it looks like, I don't know, rabbit food, rabbit drop. I don't know. I, it, it, like, if you see it, it basically looks like big chunks of quinoa, big, big kernels of quinoa on top of a pasta. And that just doesn't, it's not... It, Visually, it's not an appealing dish, but when you taste it, you're like, oh my God, this is so many layers of flavor and, you know, schmaltz makes everything good. <laughs> yeah, you got to get past the fact that it's it's very beige and brown. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I should it's say my that. recollection. It's, it's a completely it's... brown dish. There's no color to it. Yes. There's no, like, right. there's not even like a green little sprinkle of garnish. There's no tweezer <laughs> used to, you know, position yeah, microgreens yeah. on top you of your meal. Right on top of the noodles meal. we call it a day. <laughs> Michael's Deli has been a Massachusetts institution so since 1977. And when you took over, not only did you have the charge of buying a beloved community deli, but Anthony Bourdain of Blessed Memory even came for an episode of No Reservations, No Pressure. What was that like <laughs> for you? And why was it important for well, you to carry this on? I think without getting, hopefully I won't get too far off on a tangent, but I've been in the restaurant industry for a lot of years. 30 years now, whatever, close to 30 <laughs> years. And I worked for a lot of big corporations, lived in a couple of different cities, worked for several corporations here in Boston. And I got to the point where I love what I do. I love the industry I'm in, but I don't like having a boss a thousand miles away trying to tell me how I should run my business in the three square blocks that I'm operating when they've never been there. So I got to the point where I started looking for another opportunity in the industry, wanted to start my own place, but 
not start my own place. Starting your own business is difficult to say the least in this industry. So I started looking for the opportunity of a business that existed, had a good reputation that I felt I was comfortable enough with the food and the quality to be able to make it my own and, and turn something like that into my own. And it just so happened that my father-in-law had become a regular of Michael's Deli um, going back now. 14 years. I, uh, my mother-in-law had breast cancer. She was all good, but she was getting treatments at BI and my father-in-law is a deli connoisseur. He'll tell you that, not me. <laughs> and he found Michael's Deli because it's just down the street. He'd never known about it before. So he became a regular there and had said to Michael that, hey, at some point, I've got someone who might be interested in buying your business. And that was going on for probably about a year or two. And one day my, uh, my father-in-law walked in and said, man, Michael, you look really tired today. And Michael's answer was, I think I am ready to retire. Let's call your son-in-law. So they totally didn't hear each other. It was kismet to begin with, but it was just, it's a food I grew up with. It's something that, that, that touches my heart in terms of my memories as a child. So it was something very easy for me to say, yeah, I can do this. I don't know. I know the food. I don't know the recipes for all the food, but that's what Michael was for. He's the guy who really, I still use all the same vendors. I use all the same recipes. The same meat packing plant in the Bronx is what supplies us with our raw meats. Um, and all I did was add to his menu to try to make it a little more of my own personality in place. But yeah, I walked into, I think when I officially took over, the Bourdain episode had aired probably two or three months prior. He had filmed it probably five, he filmed it in January of 2012. And I took over in April, May, April of 2012. So immediately there were people coming in, oh, what did he get? And I'm like, I got to get this episode. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Guys, what did he get when he was here? And uh, that sort of thing. But the great thing about it is, obviously, Bourdain was a legend. And the beauty of it is that, for me, that episode reruns on a very regular basis. And I can tell because people come in, they're like, we'll have a day where I'll sell three dozen Howie cars and I'll sell 40 pastrami conditions because that's what they ate. And I'm like, that's not necessarily, it's our corned beef, it's our brisket, it's our pastrami, so it covers all three. But it's just funny because they're not, the pastrami conditions sell like crazy, but the Howie Carr, Rubens or straight up pastramis are, are obviously much higher sellers. But to be able to carry on that legacy and have people coming back ordering food that they, you know, saw or heard about now going back eight years, that's a pretty cool thing. I love that. Like, I, I remember I had gone to Belle Isle Seafood shortly after, I think the same episode of No Reservations. I think he just went around Boston. Yeah. Belle Isle Seafood is just this very kind of remote spot. And I, they could tell because people had just gone over the bridge and they looked and like, oh, is this the right turn in? And they're like, oh, yeah, you're here for the lobster roll. What They already knew you could just walk in the door. They got it ready for you. Speaking of food, and I have to ask this question, how do you get the title, and keep the title Corned Beef King. <laughs> I guess I inherited that title. Thankful that it continues, that I was able to uh, uphold the mantle. One of the things I did, and again, advice for anyone taking over a restaurant, if it's successful, keep the person or people that ran it around for a little while. Like I had Michael with me for six weeks so that people coming in saw him there and knew that you know, other than his personality, which if you've ever met Michael or you've heard those stories, he wasn't necessarily the kindest, most friendly. He was like the quintessential evil deli, <laughs> great food, horrible person, people skills. But I thought it was important that people knew that, okay, this, at the time I was relatively young, this young kid is going to do something to their, this deli that they've loved for so many years. So it was important that, that he was part of that transition and he was there making sure that and he wanted it too. He wanted to make sure it was his reputation. He built the place. So he wanted to make sure that I was not cutting corners, that I was doing things the right way. And that when, when people, when other food vendors found out that there's a new owner and they would walk in the door trying to sell me their product, that he was like, yeah, let's get a sample and you're going to see why we're not going to do this. You're going to see why this isn't the right move. If you, and he's, if you can't figure it out, I'm going to show you, but if you can't figure it out on your own, we're screwed. You're screwed. I'm screwed. The reputation's screwed because there's a, Again, sounding pompous, like there's a, I'd say there's like a right way to do it and there's a shortcut way to do it. And the shortcut might be cheaper and it might be easier to execute. Again, people love food and restaurants because the time and energy that the chefs, which I am not, or the cooks, or 
the people running it take to make a product that they can be proud of. So I'm thankful that I can still be proud of what we do. And I'm thankful that people still call me the corned beef king, as corny as that is. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you, you brine it, you boil it, and you slice it. Like it's not complicated, but sure, I'll be the king. <laughs> You also go a little out there with your menu. You had mentioned your knishes earlier. Uh, tell us about your crazy knishes and how your Cuban heritage has played a role in shaping the menu. Oh, again, the restaurant industry as a whole can be like a groundhog day. <laughs> and you're, you come in the morning, you prep the food a certain way, you have the menu a certain way, and it's the same menu over and over again. Lots of restaurants have the ability to run specials or change their menu in spring and fall, or they're chef driven and their menu changes every six to eight months. Like, you're a deli. If you're going to be a deli, like the, this is the menu. There's it, when I took over the place, I want to say that other than build your own sandwich, it's all the meats and you could do whatever you want with them. There were maybe like six or eight signature sandwiches. Again, all traditional deli sandwiches. And for me, I like playing with food. That's why I'm in this industry. I like, I enjoy interacting with people and I like food. I like seeing what you can come up with. And so originally he had three knishes on the menu. And I was like, I'm going to expand that a little bit because I've got corned beef here that the ends and pieces that were just tossing away. I'm like, dude, I'm going to chop that up and make a knish out of it. So that was the fourth knish. And then the, the kasha became the fifth knish. And then my original crazy knish uh, was what we still call the Michigas. And it was taking brisket, kasha, and kishki and putting them all together in one knish. And okay, so for those of you who don't know what kishki is, I'm gonna to try to say it, make it sound like appealing because <laughs> kishki is Jewish lard. <laughs> it's basically beef fat that's seasoned and it looks like a salami when it comes to you. But <laughs> I, I've never made it from scratch. I don't wanna even know how that process <laughs> looks like. I, I, I can't even imagine. I, yeah, I, I don't wanna go there. <laughs> Like when you try to tell someone, if I were to tell someone, oh yeah, this knish has um, chicken fat, grains, brisket, and then beef fat that's seasoned, and that's not appealing at all. So you just, I tell people it's Jewish lard, and they get, that's like some sort of, you know, oily, fatty flavored deliciousness. So that was my first go at a crazy knish, and, I, and it, you know, and it took a long time for people to, one, it was called the Michigas, so it's what the hell is that? For me, that was important also because it creates conversation. Like you want to know what that is. And so now I can tell you, here's what it is. Here's the process to make. It's made with a lot of love. And it's, if you want it, if you want Jewish food in your face, the Michigas Kanish is perfect for you. And then it grew into, what if I were to do every week, like an oddball Kanish? And I'm like, ah, that's too easy. I'm going to do three oddball Kanishes every week. <laughs> oh, and not only am I just going to do three oddball Kanishes every week, I have to have a theme because that's the way that I operate. There has to be a reason for it. So now going on probably almost eight years, because I probably started the crazy knishes three or four months into it. So like seven and a half to eight years, I've made three knishes every week around whatever theme I decide that try to have to fit in with each other. So I probably have made, I don't know, over 400 different flavors. The way that I look at people like, you can't do that to me. I'm like, look, you take food that tastes good, you wrap it in dough, and you bake it in an oven. It doesn't taste bad. <laughs> it still tastes good. It's just a different version of it. Um, although some of them have been miserable. But again, that's part of If you're not willing to have fun and make fun of yourself, then it ain't worth the time. I feel like the Michigas is my great-grandparent's shtetl <laughs> thrown into dough, basically. like. All every shtetl meal thrown together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that that was for me. That was a fun in it. It was like, okay, we're gonna take the, we're gonna take these three items that on their own are are huge staples in in the deli world, and I'm gonna see if they taste good together. And I was like, yeah, this tastes really good together. If I was a sit down place, like we don't do the kishki plate again in old school delis, they'll cut you a, a friggin' disc of it twice the size of a hockey puck, <laughs> throw it in a frying pan you know, sear both sides and then dump fat gravy all on top of it and go, here, call your cardiologist, have a nice day. <laughs> have a healthy yeah, exactly. day. <laughs> like, you know, like the thought, whoever thought of taking that 
taking kishki and making a meal out of it. I'm sure like the, the, the American Heart Association loves it. <laughs> but take the most, and I don't want to say disgusting, but it's like the thought process of it. Like we're just going to take fat and we're going to season it and make a dish out of it. There's nothing to it but be fat. But uh, yeah, it was, it, 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 to me, that one is, is the one that like brings me to my roots, to your point. It smells like my grandmother's kitchen when that comes out of the oven. And then going to my Cuban roots, for me, the crazy conditions were the first version of that. Like I would take around, whether it be my parents' anniversaries or my parents' birthdays or whatever. Okay, my crazy condition, I'm doing it for my dad this week. It's his birthday, so I'm going to do his three favorite Cuban foods. Or my mom would do her three favorite Cuban foods. So I would take the recipes that I knew from my family, or if I didn't know, I would be like, Oye, Dios dad, I need to know how the hell you make your whatever. <laughs> or Raquelita, I, I need to know. Your picadillo, I know my dad made it, but like, I want your recipe because he Fs with it. I want the recipe that I had when I was a kid. And so that became a way to bring in my culture that I grew up with and con combine it with Jewish food in a way that, you know, is really stupid, but is, is really a lot of fun. And then the, the one item that's on our menu all the time that actually stole, and he knows I stole it, uh, a guy bought a place in my hometown, Surfside, which is a small town in Miami Beach, he started a place called Josh's Deli, and he's more chef-driven, but very deli-oriented, and it's a real small place, great food, but he, he created this thing called the Jubin, which is what Jewish Cubans call ourselves, like that's culturally okay, sorry, editor, it's okay to be called the Jubin, it's, it's not a derogatory term, so I made my version of it, which I take, normally a Cuban sandwich is roasted pork with yellow mustard, pickles, and Swiss cheese and ham and whatever, all sorts of not kosher meats. So my version of it, I just take our, our ham, because I'm not going to make roasted pork. That's a step too far for me <laughs> to go. And I, I chose ham and pastrami with the yellow mustard, the pickles, and the Swiss cheese. And that's my deli version of a Cuban sandwich. And it's a lot of fun. And it's people look at it, and I'm like, no, it's, it's not going to taste like a Cuban. It's not going to look like a Cuban. But it's going to combine both worlds in terms of the flavor. So that's a fun one. Do you have a um, uh, a baseline for a knish that it needs to go with mustard? You mean if people ask me how? Whatever you have in it, it has to go with spicy mustard or something. Oh, that would be lines? difficult um, because, <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 I make bread pudding as, as a vehicle for a lot of my knishes. So yeah, that so, would be that so, would be different. So applying mustard to like a <laughs> strawberry ch chocolate covered strawberry for Valentine's Day sort of knish, or for my kid, I, I made a, a Twix and Oreo birthday cake knish, or those sorts of things. It wouldn't necessarily go. With. But for me, like almost every like if I'm snacking on a knish, it's got like gobs of mustard on. It. That was just the way you ate it as a kid, and that's the way you should eat it as an adult. So yeah, definitely mustard. Yeah. A big mustard's a big part of everything. People come in, they're like, I want to have your corned beef. What should I have it with? I'm like, you should have it with deli mustard. I don't like that. I'm like, then you should tell me what you like because I'm going to give it to you with deli mustard. But we give people the option. So they can do all the sorts of things to it that would make old school deli people's eyes roll in their head. The way that I look at it, like if you're buying it, you're paying for it, I'll put whatever you want in between two slices of bread. I don't care. Yeah. I can't claim to know God, but I believe that God wanted us to have mustard with deli I, food. I, I would tend to agree. I would tend to agree. <laughs> but I will not shame or ridicule. Well, I might ridicule. <laughs> uh, but I won't shame anybody who wants gobs of mayo. I have people, I have people who order corned beef and bacon. And I'm like, what? Okay. It's, I'm tacking on a buck fifty to the sandwich for the bacon. So, yippee. <laughs> but like, seriously, like, those don't go together, really. But if you think they do. <laughs> what are you making? Now? You know, so, and, 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 and some of them are regulars who order it that way. And I'm like, okay. Or corned beef with oil and vinegar. Sure. I don't, wouldn't ever want to even try it that way. But hey, again, customers always right. And as long as they're paying, they are absolutely always right. And speaking of regulars, there was one in particular whose story was really moving. Can you tell us more about her? I'm guessing you're talking about yes. Rita. So yeah, Rita is a special one um, and still is a special one. And so I'm thankful that her story got told. And I'm thankful that I have a copy of that story on the wall. Her, other than my father and my family, she's the only picture on our wall. But she was, she was a woman who I, again, inherited from Michael. Like, Michael started this relationship with her, so I'll give him all the credit in the world. 
but Rita was a woman in her 70s at the time that I met her, smoked about seven packs of cigarettes a day out on Coolidge Corner. If you walked around Coolidge Corner, you knew Rita because she was sitting out there smoking her cigarettes all day long, sitting on her walker, sitting in the sun, puffing away, having a grand old day. But she had no family. She didn't really, I think she had friends, but I don't know who they were. And she lived in an apartment up the road from us. And she would come in every single day and she would order, every day she'd order something different. But if we didn't make the toast black, she would send it back. Like, <laughs> we've, <laughs> the only time I've ever had bread catch fire in my toaster is trying to toast it for Rita, trying to run it through. Because if she ordered, like if she ordered on rye bread or something else, it's easy to crank it up. But if she ordered on white bread or on challah, and you're trying to do that in the toaster, or God forbid, a bulky roll. Like those things would catch fire before they would come out. And, and we would put them out literally and go, Rita, how's that look? Perfect. I'm like, what the <laughs> f are you doing, lady? And, but she was like, she wasn't Jewish in any way, shape, or form, but she was the absolute Jewish grandmother. She would, you know, bring us, she didn't have a lot of money. She would bring us gifts, especially on people's birthdays. She would, find stuff, you know, she'd find something that, you know, in talking to my staff that interested them and she'd bring, whether it be a book about the subject that they were talking about or some trinket that she found at some dollar store, she looked out for us as much as we looked out for her. And unfortunately, people get old and we used to, in the winter, you know, she would go with her walk every day. She was stubborn as a mule. She would, there'd be three, four inches of snow on the ground and she'd be Probably took her an hour to get from her apartment to our place. And I finally said to her, I've had enough of this. You show up in my place on a bad weather day, and I'm going to throw you out. I was like, we'll bring you your food. You're two blocks from us. We'll bring you your food. She's so stubborn, so pig-headed that she would get mad at us. So to the point where if it was, if it was 11 o'clock and we hadn't seen her yet, I'd send someone over to her place for food because I knew she wasn't going to come at that point, and I knew she wasn't going to call us and ask us for food. But she was important to all of us, so it was important that we did that for her. We didn't do it for any other reason other than like she was family for us. Uh, and at one point, there were several days that she hadn't come in, and I'll shorten the story for brevity and because I don't want to get all sappy. I was able to, through people at Beth Israel who enjoyed my food, find out that she was a patient there because that's typically not information that they would give out. And I also then found out that when I was going to go visit her there, that they had moved her to a hospice. They were nice enough to tell me where it was. And so my staff and people that knew her, like I had this whole gift box. And, and at the time I didn't know it was a hospice. I, they just said they moved her to a facility. So we had this whole big box of books and things and stuff and all this stuff to bring to her. And I brought her over to the place up in Chestnut Hill. And I was like, hey, I'm Steve and I own Michael's Deli. I spoke with someone earlier. I have this big box of goodies for Rita Manor. And they were like, she's not seeing anybody. And I was like, okay, can you just make sure she gets this? And the next day they called me to say that she had passed that afternoon, um, which was nice of them to tell, call me and tell me. But yeah, that was a hard one. And she's still a very big part of why we do what we do. That sort of personal connection that you can make with people. She's one of the ones that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. And going on a more positive way, like I have families that, I have couples that went to school together, like I'm, now I'm getting old, that were dating that got married, that I did food for their, you know, bridal party and their groom party or their brunch afterwards, that I've then done their bris or their baby naming. And I'm getting to the point now where I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting close to being able to do my first bar mitzvah for a couple that I met eight years ago, which is sort of, when you get back to that very original question, what is a deli? What is it all about? It's you make that, I'm so fortunate that I get to make that kind of connection with people in the business that I do, that they've got my cell phone number, they've got me on speed dial, they'll text me, hey, I need a favor, I, I got, last minute, I've got relatives coming into town, can you, you know, put together a platter for me, whatever it happens to be, like, there's, one, there's no, the food industry is the only one that you can do anything like that with, and I think, you know, getting back to what a delicatessen is, that doesn't exist in most restaurants, that doesn't, that those kind of, You'll have regulars and you'll develop really good relationships with them. But being able to see a kid try their corned beef or pastrami for the very first time and then do their sixth grade graduation or their whatever, all these sorts of monuments in their life that I get to be a part of is super special. I wouldn't trade it for anything.
I'm very touched. <laughs> Talk for a long time. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I think that we should, I want to ask you one more question, then we're going to move into our speed round, <laughs> our world famous speed round. And I, I can see you thriving <laughs> in this situation. I, I, I don't actually know what Anthony Bourdain ordered at Michael's, but I am curious from your perspective, what is the one thing, if you're going to visit Michael's one time and get the Michael's experience, what do you come in and order? And let's say you have a very big appetite, so you can order more than Again, it, 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 that's a funny one. Just because people come in all the time, their first time, they're like, what should I get? What's better, your corned beef or your pastrami? And I'm like, they're different. They're both really good. It's what do you like? So I'd say you start with either corned beef or pastrami, or if you want a combo, do a combo. Um, I, all, all the power to you. Do it on light rye, for Christ's sake. Can I say that? Yeah. Put mustard on it. Don't really mess with it. Absolutely. You want a Reuben, I'll give you a Reuben because that's a very traditional old school deli sandwich, but corned beef, pastrami, mustard, rye, sauerkraut, if you want to get a little fancier old school, but I just, just give me the mustard, the meat, and the bread is what I would recommend to people. They get a pickle with it because you can't have a deli sandwich without a pickle. And I would say try Kanish. Whether you want to be adventurous or not, get a Kanish because that's the, the deli experience. If you don't have if you don't have the pickle, you don't have the sandwich, you don't have the knish, you didn't get the deli experience. And obviously wash it down with Dr. Brown's, not with anything else. Um, yes. that, that's a must. You, you know, We've got all the flavors, so you can pick whichever one makes you happy, but it's got to be Dr. Brown's. Although I get a lot of people who get it with Moxie, and that sort of fits in with the New England vibe. <laughs> I don't know how people drink that stuff, but they love it. I don't think I've had that. Think of Robitussin and ginger ale mixed together. Ugh. Super yummy. That's uh, that sounds like a rave drink or something. <laughs> it, 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 oh. it, it sells like crazy, but yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, a side, a side oh, yeah. of chopped liver is never going to hurt you either. <laughs> that's really, that's next level deli experience. And again, it's brown, pasty food. <laughs> it's not eye appealing at all. It's the food of my family history, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's it was all beige and brown. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember, beige and yeah. brown. Beige and brown. Uh, speed all round. Right, Ashley, we okay. got to go into the speed round. When it comes to pickles, dill, half sour, or full sour? I'm a half sour person because I don't really like sour stuff. Okay, we haven't talked about these kinds of people yet, and I Ooh. am one. What is the best? What is the best? traditional vegetarian deli item okay so when you walk into a deli and you're a vegetarian you're really limiting your options and i was asking people like is fish an option and if they say fish is an option then you know the white fish salad or the lox is you know a go-to tuna we make our tuna from you know all white albacore meat so it's again it's tuna but it's really good tuna potato latkes potato kanish always are a good option I typically try on my crazy conditions to have a vegetarian option just to, again, give me more choices for people. It doesn't always play out that way because if it doesn't fit in the theme, sorry, I can't do it. I have a roasted red pepper hummus that I use as a spread in one of my sandwiches. So like a hummus and cheese and very limited vegetables because lettuce, tomato, onion, pickles are our vegetables. Uh, again, we're very old school. There's no spinach. There's no avocado. There's no roasted this. There's no pickle that, we're, we're pretty simple. But I'd say if fish is an option, white fish salad or, or smoked salmon is an absolute. And then they don't necessarily go with a knish because the two different types of meals, but you take a knish home for later. If you don't get a knish, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I, I tend to think that too. What is your favorite deli sandwich? But if I'm going to sit down and eat, one of the sandwiches that I created a couple of years ago is my Go like you can't eat. I can't eat corned beef and pastrami every day. I'd be, I wouldn't be here. Um, so I taste them enough. But my go-to sandwich was always turkey, like a combination of turkey and pastrami. Not turkey pastrami. That's not a real meat. <laughs> turkey pastrami with sauerkraut, hot peppers, and mustard. So a couple of years ago was the I think the 25th anniversary of the Big Lebowski. Yes, we did a podcast like, oh, on that. And I was like, I got to jump in on this. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, I'm thinking about that movie because I love that movie. There's no real food in that movie. You can't do piss. You can't do a toe. You can't do, and I'm like, white Russian dressing. So I took that sandwich and I substituted 
the Russian for the mustard, and I, that's our big Lebowski. And I brought it on just as a goof that day, and I sold a ton of them. And then it was sort of like one of those written specials that we had. And then it came to the point where, you know, the way my menus evolved is I'll come up with some stupid sandwich idea or one of my employees will come up with a stupid sandwich idea. We'll run it as like that written down piece of paper stuck on the wall special. And if it sells well, then the next iteration of the menu, something might either cut out or I make the print smaller and add that sandwich to the menu. So it was one of those things that when I was getting ready to change the menu, I put out there on social media. I'm like, Hey guys, do you think the big Lebowski should make the menu? And I got like huge responses from it. It was like, no, you have to keep that sandwich. So I was like, all right. So that sandwich made the menu. And that, that I, I wouldn't do it with the Russian dressing. I'm not a mayo or a ketchup person. So then I, by default, I'm not a Russian dressing person. So for me, I'd do it with the mustard, but that's a huge seller for us. It ties your menu together. So I got to ask a question related to things that made the menu and things that didn't. What was your best crazy knish and which one was just atrocious? Right, so the, there's a tie for atrocious. That one's easy. Um, <laughs> so I tried doing a falafel in a knish. And just if you think about a falafel is really good when it's made fresh and it's still moist and it's got the oil and the thing. So you make a falafel and then you put it into a knish and you bake it in the oven and then you warm it up again for someone to eat it. It's like a giant rock in the middle of you've the, weaponized the finish essentially was, it, it was so bad that like when 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 i made it i was like i'm gonna wait till tomorrow because we make them whatever thursday and friday they come out wait till tomorrow i'm gonna see what it's like and i went to warm one up on friday i was like we're only having two this week <laughs> Screw it. i can't give this i can't even pretend to give this to a person with a good conscience. <laughs> the other one that I enjoyed but failed miserably was my gefilte fish knish. Um, uh, mm, <laughs> I no, see no, that no. not selling well. <laughs> but, but it was really, but if you think about it, like, again, a traditional sort of uh, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah brunch item would be like poached salmon wrapped in pastry dough baked off. So it's okay, white, you know, gefilte fish, it's similar-ish <laughs> in the dough and whatever. I, I really liked it. It, it, it was, yeah, that one was bad. It was also in the ocean is almost the only thing that they have in common with salmon. Yeah, 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 At I one point, so. they were both, yeah, yeah. whatever the hell goes in gefilte fish, it was in the yeah, ocean. But, but see, my gefilte fish, again, has that Cuban flair because I make it with peppers and onions and garlic and citrus. Oh, and stuff. I love good gefilte so, fish. So that, that one's only, it's only holiday available. What flavor, Dr. Brown's, is your favorite? Oh, it's going to be the wrong answer. Because for me, like the one that like brings me back most, remember, I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, where it was 100 degrees all the damn time. Mm -hmm. So celery was my favorite. And that one brings me back to the old school soda fountains that my dad used to, after Shabbat services, we used to go to this drugstore in my neighborhood that had a counter. And like every drugstore in Miami Beach had a deli counter in it, like a real deli counter. And they made they had the, the spritzer bottle, like whatever, the, the sort of like the old-fashioned seltzer bottle. So they would cook the celery in sugar and make the syrup, and they'd pour that into a glass and then oh. shoot the, 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 the seltzer in it. And that was like the, the original seltzer. So I would argue with anyone till the day I die, like on a really hot day, the most refreshing drink you could have is a celery. Now, if you're sitting there with a corned beef sandwich, I'd say cream soda is the right answer. But again... It's black cherry cream soda or sell. Dr. Barnes has a root beer. It's a really good root beer, but like root beer, it's not deli soda, but I sell a lot of them, so it's good. What is your very favorite deli that is outside of Massachusetts? I'd start with my friends in Surfside, just because we both started around the same time. So I'd start with Josh's Deli. So if you're in Surfside, Florida, and you want to meet a really cool guy who really is passionate about food, Josh's Deli is the place to go. A couple other ones that I've been to that are really outstanding. If you want to experience deli, and, that's, and, and I don't want to say the wrong thing to people, but if you want to experience deli the way deli should be experienced, Katz's Deli is by far the greatest deli experience you could have. Not necessarily the best food. Food's really good. The experience is unlike any other. It's a machine in there. It doesn't matter. If you like food, not even deli food, that's a plate. You have to go there at some point in your life just because you've never seen anything operate the way that place operates. There's Harold's in New Jersey that's really good. The thing that's really outstanding about that place is they've got this pickle bar that's, I'm going to exaggerate and say it's 100 feet long, but it's probably like 70 feet long <laughs> with every different combination of pickle you could ever imagine. So that's a really cool, again, just 
visual and, and uh, smelly experience. What's the right <laughs> word? Any of the New York delis are going to provide you with the right food and the right experience, and, and they're going to feel and taste right. Kenny and Ziggy's in Houston. Kenny's the guy that was featured in Delaman. I was fortunate enough to do an event at the Coolidge Theater for the grand opening of that movie and watch the movie with Kenny, so I got to meet him and hang out with him. Just a, you want to talk about the quintessential deli guy? If you're listening to this and you haven't seen that movie and you like delis, shame on you. Watch the damn movie. Come get a sandwich from me before you watch it. Just why not? And really, you'll learn everything you need to know about delis in that one movie. And then there's also Manny's Deli in uh, Chicago. Oh, and sorry, one more. Wise and Sons in San Francisco. Basically, because I stole one of their menu ideas for my menu, but I credit them everywhere, the credit for doing it. But they had, um, instead of a BLT, they had a PLT, and they took their pastrami and they sliced it bacon thick and put it in the oven and crisped it. So it was like pastrami bacon. So I have a sandwich that I call the Surfside Club that instead of turkey with bacon, it's turkey with the pastrami. Uh, Thank you, Wise and Sons. They don't get a commission. They just get. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. I learned so much. Uh, yeah, same. I'm starving yeah, now. Keep doing what you're doing. It just sounds like you've got amazing stuff and you're very hopeful and energetic and, you know. Yeah, I, I, I can't thank the community at large, whether it be right in Brooklyn or all around, uh, for all the support during all this, because as difficult as this is, has been, the support for the industry as a whole from the regular consumer has been fantastic. It's just really tough to try to execute and deliver especially for full-service restaurants. So I feel much more pain for them than for me. But the outpouring of concern and care by the greater community has been outstanding. And support from folks like you who, are, who want to talk to people like poor little me and let us hopefully get people drooling <laughs> and get them, getting them to want to get in their car or hit me up for some home delivery of deli. Whatever it takes to get my food into your mouth, I'm game. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. For more information on Michael's Deli, go to michaelsdelibrookline.com or visit them in Coolidge Corner, wearing your mask, of course. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you to our editor, Jesse. Now go forth, eat conditions, grab some Dr. Browns next time you get your groceries, and stay safe. Until next time, everyone. (music) 